Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Hi, and welcome to Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. You are in the right place. Hello and welcome. Uh, it's Cindy House, the host of the podcast, here with my counterpart, the one and only Lizzie No. Hi, Lizzie. Hi there. Hi, Cindy. How's it going? It's going great. And I know that you have a lot going on in your life. This is actually the first time that we've spoken since your wedding, which was the best day of my life. And I probably (laughs) speak for a lot of the guests that it was the best day of anyone's life. But more importantly, I need to talk about a piece of media that has recently changed my life. Are you familiar with the film, Marcel the Shell? I sure am. Cindy, I cried my goddamn eyes out at that movie. Whoa, okay, okay, (laughs) all right. The backstory is this, I, as many of our listeners know, I'm a stepmom of three children. They actually call me not mommy instead of like stepmom. They're like, not mommy, which is cute. <laughs> um, and so everybody wanted to go see Marcel the, the Shell. And I was like, oh, that's so cute. I'll tag along. What a sweet kids movie. It was a movie for the ages. It was not just wow. a kids movie. It gave voice to like a depth of feeling and connection that I've been looking for my entire life. Everybody needs to see it. If you care about, like, being a part of a community in a real way, Hmm. if you care about art, if you are trying to transcend this petty day-to-day drama that we live in, like, go see Marcel the Show. And I'm not even being paid by them. Wow. That's all Uh, I have to say. (laughs) It sounds like you're saying, run, don't walk. Run, don't walk. For Marcel the Show. I'm really looking forward to seeing that movie because I feel like there's not a lot of movies that come out that are like that, that just sort of squarely hit the nail on the emotional head. Absolutely. I think there are a lot of movies that are cravenly trying to smash the nail and everything around the nail, Mm -hmm. like in a gross way, because Mm -hmm. like, you know, ever since like the mid 2000s, when it became acceptable to cry in public, like... A lot of people have been making really cheesy, corny, over-the-top, BuzzFeed-like movies and shows. But Marcel the Shell is, like, restrained, and it really Mm. earns its emotional peaks. If you could put your finger on one pivotal mid-2000s event that allowed people to cry in public, what do you think that would be? That's really hard, actually. Okay, wait, it started with 9-11, obviously, People were publicly mourning, but I still feel like we were in the era of like, that's unusual. You know what I feel it was? Do you remember that website, Upworthy? No, tell me more about it. 
It was a website, um, kind of like BuzzFeed, but like much less complex than BuzzFeed. They would just repost, it was like a blog where they would repost just like charming or touching videos. So Mm -hmm. some of them would be great. Like, oh, this rescue dog had a total turnaround from her hard past and now she's, you know, thriving in the country, you know, that type of thing. Yeah. But, but it got worse and worse until it was so manipulative. Like, a lot of it would be, like, soldiers coming back from tours of duty in Afghanistan and being reunited with their families, and, like, they would have a camera crew set up. And it was kind of gross. I was like, oh, this website is using my emotions to huh. manipulate me into buying into the military-industrial complex. Whoa. And stay tuned for my uh, thesis on how... White women's public tears are a part of our buy-in to imperialism. Whoa. I look forward to reading that. I look forward to writing it. I want to say also, like, those books that, um, I don't know if they, like, I don't know when they started getting published. We could easily look this up. Uh, Chicken Soup for the Soul. Oh, my God. Do you remember those? Let's see. Uh, Yeah, I loved those as a kid. I loved them as a kid, probably because I wasn't aware of, like, good short stories. Mm. Like This American Life or something. Mm -hmm. Okay, so Chicken Soup for the Soul was founded in 1993. You give that empire 10 years to weave itself into popular culture. There you go. I just think it's this need for the instant gratification. Like, it's like you could read a book of Alice Munro short stories and, like, get sort of a twinge and see the light in a slightly different way. And then years later, like the words that you read will come back to you in a profound way. But like that takes some engagement and some patience. It's a Mm -hmm. lot easier to watch a video of someone coming home from war in uniform and like greeting their St. Bernard dog that's at the airport. A dog food commercial that we've all Mm -hmm. seen. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. Um, uh, also, I was wondering if you could give us an update on what's going on with your music. Lizzie No, singer-songwriter. Singer-songwriter. Well, a lot is going on. I'm starting to get mixes back on a new album that I've been working on for years. Literal years. Um, I've really been patient with this process, and I think the results will show that it was worth it. So that's great. And I'm also on tour this weekend... Well, it'll be in the past when people hear this episode, but this weekend, I am going to Newport Folk Festival for the first time. Wow. That's huge, I'm Lizzie. so excited. I'm so excited. Um, do you know if Adia Victoria will be at Newport Folk Festival this year? She sure will, and I am slyly winking because we may or may not run into each other and perhaps sing together i can neither (laughs) confirm nor deny if we will be singing together but Um, she will be there yes if you missed this lizzie no went on tour for like it seemed like a whole month but it was probably like two weeks uh it was a long time i think it was like three weeks it was it was a long time with adia victoria she was her opening act uh traveled all over the place and Luckily for us, who were not able to go to the shows, there were some amazing photographers in the audience that captured whenever Lizzie and Adia would collaborate, which seemed like it was almost every night. Um, Yes. 
We really got into a groove. And the photos from that groove are just like beautiful. I've talked about this before on the podcast. You know, it just looked like you guys had a really special connection going on. We did and we do. Can I now introduce the episode? Because I have Let's thoughts. do it. Yes, <laughs> let's do it. Take it away, Lizzie No. As you might have surmised, this week's episode is an interview with my dear friend and blues rock icon, Adia Victoria. I'm so excited about this conversation, partly because it's just a treat to talk to Adia because she's so freaking funny and smart and thoughtful um, and brave in in the the way she's able to just go there intellectually on some tough topics, but also because it's a different type of conversation than we normally have because I probably know her better than I know most of our other guests. Like when we had this conversation, we had just recently gotten off the road together. So I tried to use my insights that I gained into her live set to inform the questions that I asked her in our interview. Um, So that was just a treat for me personally. I think she's a really important artist for right now because Adia treats the blues not just as a musical genre or a form. We all know like the formal elements of the blues, but she treats it as a tradition, like a river that she's stepping into. She treats it as a mode Mm. of creation. She treats it sort of as a spiritual practice and as a way of finding her way into courage and self-acceptance in a world that has been really hostile towards her in some ways. So we had a great conversation. She really challenged me to think deeper about some of the questions that I was asking. Um, And we also just had a ball, you know, shooting the shit like we love to do, whether in the tour van or on the Basic Folk podcast. Nice. Well, we're going to hear a song from Adia. This is like a new single that she put out in the last few months that I just love. Um, It's called In the Pines. And then we'll get to the conversation between Lizzie and Adia Victoria on Basic Folk. I saw Jesus Reaching at me from the side on the side of the road And beneath was a cross on the ground Where they found you cold that night Your mother cried but Peter, Paul, and Mary, and she cried for the Holy Ghost. So later in the church, there's nowhere else to go. For the people around here, in the pines, in the pines, where the sun, it never shines, and you shiver where the cold in the pines, in the pines, where the sun it never shines, and you shiver where the cold wind blows. Welcome to Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. I have been so excited for a minute now to interview my good friend Adia Victoria. Are you calling from Nashville, Adia? I am. I'm actually at my cabin uh, about 40 minutes northwest of um, Nashville and Ashland City. For the listeners who can't see, because this is an audio format, 
Adia is in a place I would absolutely expect her to be, which is like a very woodsy library looking place. Um, But I have one million questions for you and I don't want to keep you here all night. So let's dive in. Okay. Please introduce us, if you will, to baby Adia. You grew up in South Carolina, one of six siblings. Is that right? Where are you in the birth order? Were you dark and spooky even then? (laughs) Introduce us. So yeah, I'm from Spartanburg, South Carolina, where I uh, was born and, and grew up, where I was raised. And I have one older sister, two big brothers, then it's me, and then two little sisters. So I'm in the middle. Did you have that middle child syndrome of like needing to be weird or being really shy? I feel like middle children go one of two ways. They're like big performers or they like make themselves invisible. Yeah, I was a big performer ever since I was... Um, Around like four or five, um, my school that I went to was attached to our church. And so we would do like um, choir and sing at Christmas. And I was always like, hello, my baby. Hello, my darling. (laughs) 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 And they're like, okay. (laughs) (laughs) That is incredible. Um, That leads me to my next question, which is that you were raised Seventh-day Adventist. Some people know a little bit about it. Some people don't. I think it does have sort of like a mysterious reputation as being like kind of closed off to the outside world in a way. Did you have a sense from your religious upbringing of like two things, your parents' hopes for you when it comes to like the faith tradition you were raised in? And did you have a a very like particular sense of your relationship to like the outside secular world? Like what was your worldview growing up? Well, I mean, it was kind of culty, the church. (laughs) It was actually started in upstate New York uh, in the 1800s, where all of these um, new religions, new earth religions, like, popped up. Like Mormonism, Um, too. Mormonism, yeah, it was tied to that. And all these just, like, weird Christian sects. And ours Mm -hmm. was the Seventh-day Adventist church. And so we were actually doubly cut off from the world because we we keep the Jewish Sabbath. So from... uh, Sunset Friday night to sunset Saturday, we had to like turn off all electricity and like we'd go to church and worship and just basically be alone with your thoughts and God. Um, And then we also had a a special diet. So I I spent a lot of my childhood vegetarian and vegan. And so I was just completely cut off from the world for the first 11 years of my life until I went to um, public school for the first time in sixth grade. But yeah, I mean, I think like the adults all of me and my friends and my siblings, like all of our church and school friends, all of our parents seem to be be mostly preoccupied with like keeping us away from the outside world, the secular world, mm-hmm. and just getting getting us to Jesus uh, for the second coming, just making sure that we were going to be saved when that trumpet sounded and everything else was just kind of a blur, but <laughs> just making sure our soul was saved, but they didn't really do much in terms of our humanity. Well, damn. I mean, what were some of the biggest culture shocks when you went to public school and middle school? Let me see. Um, Shaved legs, crop tops, (gasps) pierced ears, backstreet boys. Um, (laughs) Just pop culture. I, you know, I had to, I remember just doing a deep dive um, in in, in 1997, the first year that I was in public school. And I remember when Biggie died, I was like, okay, okay. big big died and so i was like making notes so i could like just go in the hallway and like hey did you hear that notorious big died i was just so out of the loop and like i had no idea about like dating and boys and 
I mean, I was just so weird. And then I played the tuba too that year. So, I mean, I had it coming. I really had it coming. <laughs> Precious. Fresh me. I feel like in when we were on the road, you told me a story about people, like people in your middle school quizzing you about whether you knew like Destiny's Child mm-hmm. and Maya. Like who, who was the pop star that you were sad not to know? Um, honestly, like I wish I had more time with Aaliyah um, growing up. Yeah. I got, I got into her in 1997. She was like my first uh, female pop star that I just fell in love with, but I was late to the game. So I, I really didn't know about her like back in 94 right. and like when she first popped off, but I, mm-hmm. I loved her because I could emulate her because she was kind of tomboyish, mysterious. Um, mm-hmm. and, but I mean, by the time that we moved to moved out of the church, we got cable. So I fell in love with Britney Spears and I was able to find Christina Aguilera and get like glittery eyeshadow. But I, I just wish I didn't have so much like toxic shame about liking pop music. I was like, oh God, I'm going to go to the right devil. baggage around it. Yeah. Oh man, I can relate to a little bit of that, but it sounds like you had a real heavy dose of the religious baggage when it comes to pop who culture. Was, so who was your first pop star? Well, the good thing was that my parents liked pop music. Mm-hmm. So like I, we had it at home, even though in church it was kind of looked down on. Right. So like I was very into Michael Jackson as a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, and luckily my parents were very much like, we don't need to be that isolated, even that though that's like sort of the message that we're getting. Right, right, um, right. From this like evangelical culture. Mm-hmm. At that time when you started discovering pop singers of the 90s. And I mean, that was such a rich time for female pop stars. Did you have any conception that you wanted to perform? Like, were you already writing your own songs and poems? Or was it, did that come later? I mean, when I first got into pop music, I I wasn't performing outside of um, playing that tuba, you know, at at, uh, concerts. But I, I remember loving that feeling of like, I was this itty bitty little thing and I had, and the reason I played the tuba was because it was free. We were really poor. So they, I would just, I would be able to like bring home the tuba with me. And I was really fixated and obsessed with being able to hit a low A note on the tuba because it's one of the hardest notes to hit because it's so deep. Mm-hmm. And I remember I practiced all semester and we are, one of the songs we were performing was My Heart Will Go On by Celine Dion, very 1997. Oh my God. And I remember hitting that low A note. A note and feeling like this whole everybody else in this band is like sitting on top of my shoulders like I am undergirding like my my little breath and I just remember feeling so proud of myself and and just playing the tuba I felt like I was performing and like I was I was needed there I had a space Mm -hmm. you know that I I was happy to fill and so that was my first um, foray into secular music and then I later tried out for the cheerleading squad in sixth grade and I made it um (gasps) I perf- I auditioned to Shawty Swing in my way. Stop <laughs> it. Don't look good to me. But I wanted to be like in front of a crowd because I was so reclusive yeah. and so quiet. But like being able to share in front of a, a crowd like made me come alive at that point. And were you in ballet at that time too? What's the timeline? Like, like were you like already c- thinking of yourself as like a physical performer? Yeah, so I started dancing actually around sixth grade, um, seventh grade, actually, seventh grade. And the thing that got me into dance was my grandmother recorded this 80s movie called Fast Forward. It came on like HBO one night and I had it on VCR or uh, 
uh, VHS tape, and I would watch it religiously and just like learn the dance moves. Like it was all like mm-hmm. '80s, like breaking kind of style. Like, but I loved it. I was just like, this is so fun. And so I started doing like after school programs with ballet and contemporary, and it kind of gave my body back to me because you know, growing up in the church especially young girls, like we're so shamed about having a body, like the spirit separated from the flesh, the flesh is condemned. But I was like, no, my flesh is fine. Like I can, I can pop and lock, you know, like it it made me want to figure out more ways that I could be at home in my body. So that's what Mm -hmm. dance did. And then I would, I would um, continue to do ballet and, and contemporary modern dance through high school. I think that like the enlightenment did us all dirty when it comes to like mm-hmm. Christian cul- culture in America, mm-hmm. because I, you see so many people that like, I feel like you can sort of tell when someone was raised Christian and like, mm-hmm. I count myself in that group and it's not all Christianity, you know, it's not all, not all spirituality is bad, but this particular like enlightenment hangover that we have mm-hmm. where we have to like be intellectuals and be in our brains and yes. not let emotion and physical impulses like get in the way yes. is like the worst way to make art. It's the worst way to heal yourself in your mind. It is the mm-hmm. worst way to live. I feel like we just, I just want our whole country to get free of that hang up. That puritanism. Yeah, I I felt at war, like with my body, because I was told that, you know, my body was inherently uh, sinful, like the flesh was simple, mm-hmm. but then also my body was a temple of God. So it was very conflicted. It was this paradox. And I remember around like fifth grade when I was still in the school, I began like biting my fingernails viciously, like till they mm-hmm. would bleed. I was just like attacking my body from anxiety of yeah. just like, oh no, I have to like. I have to be at war with my body. And then it like, Mm -hmm. I had like eating disorder issues where I wouldn't eat. And I was just like, I don't know. And then, and then there's an extra burden of like, girls are like, can't show your shoulders because you'll be distracted. Boys will be distracted. And it's like, so now I'm in charge of the the knucklehead boys' morality too. It's just like, Jesus Christ. Right. like being a black woman in that like strict I mean a black girl in that strict Mm -hmm. religious environment also had an impact like I saw a quote from you and I know it's like it's a song lyric but you've talked about it in interviews before about I don't know nothing about southern bells but I can tell you about southern hell like how does that southern female stereotype intersect with being a black woman in a religious context like what did you think of your femininity Um, I wanted to, I wanted to drown it as a little girl. Yeah. Um, but then I I realized that there was a certain power in being an an outsider because, you know, all the lessons that I was, I was learning about my body and all the trauma, like the spiritual trauma Mm -hmm. that I was learning and like the baggage, it was coming from white people. So I was like, if this is what you're teaching me and this is how I feel like I can't imagine the additional burden of having to perform whiteness. On top right. of all of this, you know, at least being a black girl, no one expected much from me. It was like, I'll never be in the club. You know, I'll always be a black right. girl. It's like my, you know, some of my best friends were white girls and they were like driven insane. Like they were at battle with their right. parents. And and so, you know, that line, I don't know enough about Southern Bells, but I can tell you about Southern Hell. It's like it's kind of just exposing the performance and all the effort that goes into the creation of a, a Scarlett O'Hara or a Southern Charm and on all this bullshit. Cause it's like, it is yeah. a performance. It is constructed as well. 
I think that's so interesting. And people get this really one dimensional um, idea about white supremacy, that it's mm-hmm. o- it only hurts people of color. Mm-mm. It hurts white people equally, spiritually. I think And more. like, I always had this feeling growing up, like, there was this sense of invisibility, like, okay, the boys at my white mostly white school are not going to like me. Right. But there also was less pressure to look a certain way because you yes. were already kind of counted out. Like, yes. I'm not in competition. I might as, I might as well do the tomboy thing or yes. the hippie thing or whatever is going to make me feel more comfortable. Right. And that's like a weird shade of gray to be living in as a person that's like coming into your own as a woman, as an artist, you know, all the different sides of ourselves. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I feel that too. It's like, you know, I'm I'm never going to be anybody's first choice. Like I, there's no way in hell, like growing <laughs> up in, in South Carolina in the nineties, looking the way that I did, that anyone would ever consider me for anything to be, you know, attracted to. So it's like the expectations right. were really low for me. And so I think that allowed me to kind of just become eccentric. It's like, well, no one's expecting anything of me. So I may as well it's like Erica Badu says, I can't please me. Yeah. I, I work at pleasing me because I can't please you. You know, it's like I may as well just really love the things that I love. Like I loved river dance and I loved, you know, I, I loved um, going out in the woods and like digging mm-hmm. creeks and, and crawfish and, and, and 80s dance and playing the tuba. It's like, well, this is my pleasure. No one else is asking me to be anything else. So whatever. Right. Like you were never going to fit in the cookie cutter. So right. you might as well. I was never a contender. <laughs> I was going to actually ask you about that sort of cosmic nature connection that you have. Can you, do you have any like early memories of being in nature that have stuck with you to like give people a sense of what your like natural environment meant to you when Mm -hmm. you were growing up? Like, and I feel like that's a relationship that's continuing to develop and play out in your art. Mm -hmm. I remember in the summer growing up in Spartanburg um, and in the South, it's the middle of hurricane season. And we would have these violent, violent thunderstorms, like terrible. I mean, they were probably attached to a tornado season as well. Right. So I was used to the, the weather being something that could kill me. You know, it wasn't just like, oh, it's a storm. It's like, it, are the windows rattling? Do we need to go and, and hide from nature? Right. And I remember watching the, the creek and in my house when I was in third grade. We had this creek that uh, ran like wove through our neighborhood like all the kids would play in it, we catch crawdads and all that stuff. But when it would rain like that, the creek would get so violent. It would it would overthrow its uh, banks and it would like flood people's backyards. It would like get into like people's mm-hmm. basements and whatnot. And I remember as a little girl standing in, in, on a bridge and looking over at the creek and being on the creek side of just being like, yes, yes, destroy, like grow. Like I was on the water side. Like I wanted the water to wash everything away. You know, and I I was just like, nature is right. And then I I remember thinking about all the things that I learned about in the church, um, about the Sabbath, where the only thing we could do was like go out and and be in nature. That became God to me. That became um, the sacred was was nature. It had nothing to do with being inside of a church. There was a mulberry tree when I was in kindergarten and all the all of our all of us would go and eat mulberries and then we get stains on our clothes. (laughs) <laughs> and our, the teachers would be so mad, but the like, we loved it. Like the mulberries were delicious and we got to like freak out the adults. But it was like, that's what nature is to me. It, it, it was freedom. It was the only place that I could feel free mm. and feel some sort of connection with the divine. 
So it was like a wild and untamed mm -hmm. and like in a way it's it's your rebellion against that like mm -hmm. head first, body later, yes. you know, mind over matter yes. dogma. Yes. That's really fascinating. Okay. So that's like the background of Adia's growing up. After high school, you moved to New York City. Can mm -hmm. you paint us a picture of those times? And what was your artistic practice like in those New York days? Um, I was a high school dropout and I moved to Brooklyn in 2005. I don't even know what I was running towards. I, I was just running. I, I was in love with the mm -hmm. Strokes. I was in love with Julian Casablanca. So I was like, I'm going to go meet Julian and he's going to be so impressed with me. <laughs> what? Um, but I just went there, I think, to just be anonymous. Like I... Mm -hmm. I didn't know anybody when I, I moved up there. I was living with a friend of my mom's from um, high school, from an Adventist academy. So I was living with this woman um, and she was a dentist on Rikers Island. So I was just by myself. And I would just, I remember I would just like, Lizzie, I would just like walk, like walk yeah. places. Like I was like, oh my God, because I didn't have a driver's license at 19 yet. So I had my Walkman and I had three records that I took with me to New York. I had uh, Kings of Leon, AHA Shake Heartbreak. Mm -hmm. I had late registration by Kanye West and I had Extraordinary Machine by Fiona Apple. And I would just I mean, come on. That is walking around New York music for yeah. the ages. And I moved there in the <laughs> fall, so the leaves were coming down yeah. and it was crisp. But I felt freedom. I was like, I can move through the world in my body. Like I can walk from Brooklyn all the way to the Upper West Side. And but I, I didn't have art there. And I remember there was this line uh, that Toni Morrison says in Sula. Uh, where she was talking about how any artist that doesn't have art is dangerous. So mm -hmm. that was my time in New York at, at 19 and 2021. I was like, I don't have anything to channel this into. So I'm just going to like start breaking, breaking shit. I'm going to break myself and like started clubbing and going out to Marquee and making friends, like working at Abercrombie and Fitch and like making friends with like club promoters, doing a lot of coke, throwing up all over the meatpacking district, just like mania. But I needed it. Tale as old as time. Girl. That is like a New York girl rite of passage. Thank you for being transparent here on Basic Folk. I mean, I was I was just like, I needed to like, after being so wound up in the South, I feel like it was a rubber mm -hmm. band. It was just like, pew, and New York and like trains and ah and this and street meat. <laughs> yeah. What is the story of you picking up guitar? What was your first guitar? Um, what did it feel like to be playing the guitar after some years of like singing tuba and then kind of being without the craft? Yeah, I my first guitar was um, a guitar that my best friend had left me. Um, my, my best friend, Jen, we went to high school together. We dropped out of high school together. And then she married a Mormon and ran away and then was still okay. smoking and drinking. But I was living in Atlanta, um, as was mm -hmm. she. And she left for the summer to do some some trip out in Mormon land out in Utah. So she left her car parked at my house and I still don't have a driver's license. This was summer 2008. And mm -hmm. uh, so she was like, can I park my car here? And I was like, sure. And she like moved her stuff in my, my room. And uh, one of it was a, a Washburn acoustic guitar. And she had gotten me into country music, like Johnny Cash, Waylon Jennings, mm -hmm. Merle Haggard, Patsy Klein, all the like the golden classic stuff. And uh, I had this guitar. And so I was just like, let me see what this is all about. And I was into like, MGMT at this time, as mm -hmm. one was in 2008. As everyone was. As as we were. Oh, it's raining. I hope that doesn't... It's raining. 
Okay, y'all, you'll hear the rain. I can't hear it, but if we can hear the rain, then you can certainly hear the subway outside of my apartment. So we're just going to call it um, found audio. Ambient sound. Ambient noise. Room tone. (laughs) Yes. Yes, Lizzie. Um, So yeah, I I started learning. um, The first song I learned on guitar was Pieces of What by MGMT. And uh, God, I'm so old. And then I... You're really not. You're really speaking to a lot of people's upbringings here. I hope so. That those early young adult days of MGMT or like da- or like you'd go to a party and like girl talk would be playing. Yes. Like those days today's girl. kids will never know. They don't make today's them like kids that. Will never know. They don't make them like that no more. <laughs> don't make them days no more. But I mean, I just um I got I gotten into the blues at this point. And I started journaling again because I didn't journal at all the whole time I, I was living in New York. I just was just it was just a blur. And so I started journaling once I moved back south to Atlanta and I was working as a telemarketer. And I remember just being obsessed with the guitar, just like this. It was kind of like what I, I loved about dance was this rhythm of like mm-hmm. this connection with your fingers of learning how to coordinate, connect your your mind to your your body. And then your fingers just becoming this little orchestra. So the, huh. the the guitar got me off of like drugs and it got me off of like trying to destroy myself. It gave me something to live for, um, mm. something to not like destroy my, like it gave me an incentive to live. And I was, you know, listening to Skip James, Robert Johnson, Victoria Spivey. Mm-hmm. And I, I loved the stories that they could tell about black Southern culture, black Southern existence. Right. And then I just started simultaneously writing again as I started learning the guitar. So it was kind of this renaissance of me being a telemarketer and just being obsessed with my hands and learning how Mm -hmm. to connect back with my body. Okay, I want to talk about, I want to keep going through your very remarkable life story. Okay, you have Beyond the Bloodhounds, which is your major label debut. It's a statement on the blues. It is inspired by literature yeah. And what I'm interested in is how it was an introduction for you of like, this is who Adia is. This is your this is your first impression to the world, right? Because it's your yeah. major major label debut. Yeah. So beyond like sound and song selection and all of the sort of like nitty gritty of what goes into the album, what did you want people to take away from that album as far as like, this is who I am. This is my debut. I mean... I felt like making that debut, I made that on my terms. And like, honestly, like I'm not trying to be arrogant and I'm not trying to be a troll, but like what I wanted people to take away from that record was, fuck you, I don't owe you anything. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't don't owe you a one, four, five progression. I don't owe you a hook. I don't owe you, you know, black people to Americana. We always got to sing soul and uplift the white people like mammy. Like, no, I don't I don't owe you comfort. <laughs> I don't owe you that. Like, if you're going to listen to this, you're going to listen to my demons and you're going to listen to my struggles. I don't owe you shit. And so that's been my that's been my guiding philosophy the whole time that I've been in, in the industry. And it's like and it's not to say that I don't make friends and it's not to say that, like, I don't appreciate where I am. I do. It's cool. I'm amused. I'm tickled. But I don't owe these white people shit. And the blues is whatever I say it is. Say that again. 
The blues is whatever <laughs> I say it is. And that's and that's what I want. That was the umbrella that I was standing under that I've slowly been fortunate and privileged enough to expand it to include more of my brothers and sisters who are doing this work with me. It's like, mm-hmm. actually, you know what? The first thing I'm going to do is reclaim. I'm going to reclaim the power and the privilege from the definers to define me. And I'm, I'm going to look back at them. So that's what my major label debut was all about. It was it was as, it was as punk as it was blues. It was still that little absolutely freak little girl from South Carolina that loved river dance. Like yep. this is my pleasure. Yeah, it's really it really is an eclectic record. I mean, well, you've also said that during those early days of touring, you found yourself getting like burned out and yeah. that it took a toll on your inner life. Yeah. Um like your interiority. Can you talk about the touring that went on like that must have been such a whirlwind. And like, how did you get yourself back to sanity? What were some, like, did you develop strategies to keep yourself safe and sane and well? Yeah, I mean, the first tour was, it was really fucking hard um, beyond the bloodhounds. That that campaign kicked off. I found out, you know, me and my partner Mason found out that we were pregnant and um, I had an abortion and mm-hmm. like, a few weeks before the record came out, I found out I was pregnant on tour. Shit, that's weird. Oh my God. And so, you know, you go home and this thing that you've been working for, this ability to finally perform your art the way you want to, that had been my dream since I was a little girl. I now had to have an abortion because I needed to protect that. And that was mine. So I, I think that I've taken this very seriously. I've taken this, this autonomy of, because I know what I've had to give up for it. I know that it's not just something that like I stumbled on. I wasn't just down at the crossroads playing with the devil. Like I worked toward this. I gave sac- I gave up sacrifices. I killed for this. And so I'm I'm very vicious about taking ownership of, of it. And it's not to say like I'm I'm trying to be I'm not like a megalomaniac, like oh, this is mine, but no. it's like this is my life. And I think that when I went out on that first tour, I didn't understand how much people would feel entitled to to me past my music i've always been like i make the art have the art leave me alone that's not how it worked (laughs) that's not how it works for women i'll say no exactly so i was expected to do a lot of emotional care uh, caregiving and like just a lot of like a lot was pulled out of me that i had never had to give to people before in a way that i was not prepared to in a way that i don't ever want to and I think that as I've, I've gone on, um, I've learned how to be accessible to people, but still respect my boundaries. Um, yeah. I, I started meditating a lot after the first record cycle. Um, I started meditating actually at Aaron Desner's studio in, in Long Pond. <laughs> We're we about were... to get to that. Um, but I, I knew that my mind was being, was being pulled out in a way that I hadn't felt since I was a little girl in the church. Like it felt under attack. And so I knew that I needed to fortify my mind, fortify my own boundaries and retake ownership of of myself. Okay, I want to talk about Silences. 2019, co-produced with Aaron Dessner. I feel like Silences is such a mean record. Like it really grabs you and doesn't let you go. How did you create an environment in the studio where you were going to be able to let that darkness spill out? Because that doesn't happen by accident. That like really deep, dark, looking into the void vibe. I don't talk about 
her a lot and I don't talk about this a lot because it just it feels private but so my best friend in Nashville was Jesse Zazu from the Starlands uh we we met in 20 2011 and we were just like it was like rare thing it was kind of like with you and I where you meet we're just like mm-hmm. friends like we're for friends you know like I get I'm, you I'm supposed to know you and she was kind of like my champion. Like she she taught me a lot about gigging in Nashville and, and being a woman, a young woman, working with big men, like going into a room with people who are like three times the size of you and still being able to say no to them. And she was diagnosed with cancer, cervical cancer in 2016 while we were on tour. And she be- progressively became sicker and sicker as I was out on the road. So I wasn't home for a lot of her her, her sickness. And she passed away in 2017, that fall. And that so was sorry. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, we're all gonna die. But she yeah. she lived, and the last thing that she told me, I was in her hospital room, and she said, "Adia, you're an artist, and if there's anything that it's ever in the way of your flow, get it out of your way. I don't care if it's a relationship. I don't care if it's you. Get out of your own way." And that was the last conversation that I had with her. And then I met Aaron Desner um, in in January um, of 2018 or 17. I can't remember, but it was right around her her passing. And I had a preliminary uh, session with him. Me and Mason flew up there to Hudson to Long Pond, and he was just like someone I'd never met in, in in the music biz. He's like this white dude in this you know massive indie band from Ohio. It's like we we're not supposed to know each other. Like our backgrounds, we're not supposed to. Um, crisscross like I was not supposed mm-hmm. to know Aaron Desner he went to Ivy League school he actually went right. to Columbia I just lied about <laughs> going there but I felt I can't him. wait for you to get your honorary doctorate from Columbia Girl, and then yes. jokes on the world you will be the, you will have the last laugh on that who's on top and who's on bottom now um, <laughs> but Aaron I think that he saw what I was going through like I just released my first record on a major label I was touring I didn't have a manager at this point I was self-managing it was just me and Steve Robofsky from Atlantic and his Rolodex and a dream the song that I wanted to talk about you already mentioned which is Pacolet Road I think it's an interesting point of view on that song. You're not like alluding to your ancestors. You are talking directly mm-hmm. to them, sort of. Do you feel, were you feeling like a sense of responsibility for how you would represent like your black female foremothers? No, I was actually angry at a lot of my uh, black female foremothers when I wrote that song because, you know, I, I grew up in the shadow of generational trauma and generational mm-hmm. abuse, um, where a lot of the women that came before me in my family protected the men and allowed the men to do terrible things to the girls. Mm-hmm. So I was pissed. And that song was kind of me like giving the middle finger to all of these women that sat and gave their lives away, their brilliance away, their gifts away, you know, in the service of some mediocre black man. So I was just like, fuck yeah. you. Like, you know, I'm going to do everything in the world that my grandma ever wished she had. And I love my grandma. I adore her. She's an artist. She started painting once my terrible grandfather fucking died. But she understood where that was coming from. And and my grandma's, she's always respected that in me. Of just like, she always respected the art, the artist in me. And, she, and I think that she kind of lives vicariously through me of just 
that's what I could have been if if only, if only. So my my way of honoring her is by embracing the punk side of of the blues. Yeah. Oh man. I'm gonna be revisiting this interview for like gems of wisdom because it's so important that we get beyond the like blank girl boss feminism. Like it yeah. needs to be messier and trickier than that yeah. for it to work. Yeah. Speaking of which, I wanna talk about South Gotta Change. You are someone who doesn't, you're not going to sit on the diversity panel and have the like uplifting, simple conversation about kumbaya, we're going to all come together, just a little more understanding. Let's talk about race so white people feel better. And I'm the not. The black experience. The black experience. The and one. That, that came off of my tongue dripping with irony because I do feel like we are in an age where like, a certain type of white person is obsessed with listening to stories about black pain and like yeah. sitting in the room at the diversity panel, just like nodding and taking notes and then never doing anything about it. Yeah. So <laughs> in the midst of that culture shift yeah, yeah, where people are like, listen to black women, but like don't actually do anything to help. Yeah. You release South Gotta Change in 2020 and it creates a little bit of a flurry of attention activity. Like, were you thinking of that as a protest song? Who were you singing to? And how did the release like change your life? I mean, I was singing to the South. I was singing to the white um, power structure, the white mind of the South, um, mm-hmm. implicating it. Because I hate with, you know, even in like Americana, where there's these panels of talking about like racism, it's always noticeably absent of white people. Like they don't have a race in this. Like it's like the worst kind of gaslighting of just like your abuser sitting, you know, giving you the microphone and, and, and asking you, you know, what can your abuser do to, or not even that, or like, how has it felt to have been abused by somebody, but not yeah. me, <laughs> you know, it's just but like not this, me, definitely not me, yeah, but not <laughs> me. It's like, it's just this way of like, as far as I can see, it's the same spirit of why the motherfuckers put, uh, hoods over their heads when they would lynch black people because whiteness needs to remain remain anonymous and unseen. And I get in some twisted way that this is their way of being like, you know, listen to to white people or listen to black women. And like they give us the phone and they give us the space, the microphone. But it's like, I've said all I need to say about race. I actually mm-hmm. don't have anything else left that I need to say to white people about race. Like I don't ever really need to talk to a white person about race again. So when they had me on these panels, you know, it was just kind of like, I would just implicate whiteness. I would just make whiteness explicit i would ask them why why does your do you guys feel weird when you are out there playing blues music and it's a bunch of white people in the bill and you're playing a folk tradition that has nothing to do with you so i'm actually so i go to the panel and i ask questions because i don't have answers i've never been a white i've never been white but they have <laughs> but but they won't talk about it so it's like you can, we all know about the black experience yes 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 it's terrible for me but like you said whiteness has been as spiritually damaging, if not more for white people than it is for black people. And it's time yes. for them to make that explicit. And so South Gotta Change, I wrote that following the, the lynching of George Floyd and the passing of Representative John Lewis. Of I was just sitting out on, on the back porch, just hot in that summer of 2020. It was just like exhausted. And like, I'm tired of having to be, I'm, I'm tired of having the onus of like uplift, uplifting my race and talking about right. the black experience. It's like, no, I'm gonna talk to the white South. I'm gonna talk to this this narcissistic, you know, um, fucking terrified force that is whiteness. 
and I'm gonna mm. I'm gonna talk to it directly. And I'm and I know that every single white person that listens to that song knows who the fuck I'm talking to. I'm not talking to black people. I'm talking about the white South yes. that just wears mask after mask after mask. And I'm I'm just staring in the face like I see you. Like I fucking see you. Like what are you so afraid of? Like you've been running all this time. Like I can't imagine anything more terrifying than running from something that you can't face. Just fucking turn around and face it. And it's like, no one has any great expectations of white people. We're not expecting you to be great. Like we know that you are, we know that you're fucked up, you know? So just, (laughs) just just, start doing the minimum. Yeah. Just do the minimum. Start doing a little self-reflection. Can you? Like, I'm not expecting you to be the good guy. You don't even have to be the good guy. Just be a human. (laughs) Sorry, Lizzie girl. No, don't be sorry. I think it's like all that, all anyone really can expect is like a little bit of humanity from each other. Um, and it would just be nice if white people included themselves in that instead of treating racism and inequality as an issue of other people. The Girl, other. yes. Like you have a race too. And look within. Yes. That's why I love like voices like Toni Morrison and like Tressie McMillan Cotton. I remember she said on Twitter once and she got so many white people mad. She said, look, you can be white or you can be human, but you can't be both. So it's it's time mm-hmm. for like white people to decide like and, and really reckon with what was taken from you. Like if you think black folk had yes. interge- intergenerational trauma, y'all got it, too. Yes. And I think I mean, her is it a it's like a. Sh- it's like a long essay or a novella or what, I don't know what the exact format is, but playing in the dark where she, it's like a long essay where she talks about how whiteness and like mainstream culture Mm -hmm. is constructed Mm -hmm. exactly in reflection of blackness. Like white people need Mm -hmm. the dark Mm -hmm. other Mm -hmm. in order to know who they are. And that's something that people aren't looking at. Yes. Yes, it is. It, it is a for, whiteness is a, a force of extraction and absence. It is only yeah. present by what it is not, which is so like, imagine how psychologically fucked up you are. Like, I don't know who I am, but I know who I'm not. Like, how negative would that be? Like, how soul depleted must that be that you have? It's like no, an absence of, th- of something. You're nothing. You're, yeah, you're nothing without an other there. Like that, that would fuck my brain up. It's already fucked up. <laughs> That's bad for your health. I <laughs> want to talk about a Southern Gothic because it's like the world that you're living in now, kind of. And I met you during the Southern Gothic, like, aftermath and Ain't Killed Me Yet tour. Um, you were thinking a lot about death when you made this album. And do you feel like that was just a pandemic preoccupation? Or is that something you're going to keep speaking on in future uh, albums. No, I, I think that growing up in the evangelical church, I was very death minded. They put death on my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, but they taught me that death was something to be afraid of. And I, as a little girl, I was fascinated by this, by people's fears, because I, I realized that there was a lot of truth that people weren't talking about that were, was tied to their fears. And I had a lot of cats growing up. And then I remember when my cat Tiger died, I was eight. And my brothers put him in a box and put him in the woods in the kudzu behind our house. And I remember when, when I learned about what happened to a body after it died, about decomposing. I remember when Tiger died, I was like, now the rotting process begins. Mm-hmm. But I was, I was just like, I needed to know death. Like I needed to, to claim death as mine, as natural as birth, in order to not be afraid of it. And so 
during the pandemic, you really saw the wheels come up, come off of polite white society. Like you really saw um, them having to face the abyss that they've been able to run away from or, you know, cover it over with euphemisms and politeness and manners. It's like, no, this is the first time that you are out of control. This is the first time where you can't treat the rest of the world like an extension of your fucking home. Like there's rules, there's house rules here and you do not set them. And so you could just see how, right. how panicked, you know, white America was by this pandemic, not just about the fact of dying, but of just not being able to be in control at all times and having to, um, right. ha- having to acquiesce to something bigger to them. Um, and so Southern Gothic was, it kind of sent me back into the, the mood of being a little girl and examining all the, the pathologies of, of whiteness in the South that I, that raised me and really looking at what they were afraid of and what they tried to make me afraid of. Damn. I mean, can you talk about You Was Born to Die? I know there that song, I mean, it's it feels like that song, even though it's a cover, really does sum up a lot of the spirit of a Southern Gothic. Why was it important for you to have that song on your record? And like, was there was there a particular like what was the journey to getting that on your album? I know there was like some struggle and back and forth. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I I knew that what the blues represented for me was 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 hard won peace with myself, my mortality, mm-hmm. with my lack of of control, with my tra- my mm-hmm. the the transcendent nature of of humanity that we're all just passing through here. The blues was like the mm-hmm. best uh, kind of. Um, it was like a, a pill, like a anti-anxiety pill, just like, hey, you're gonna die. Like that's what no one wants to talk about. There's this great Madman quote. I love, I love Madman. I know you don't like it, but I love it. And there's this line where Donald Draper says, "We're born alone and we die alone, and this world just drops a whole bunch of rules on you in the middle to make you forget." But I never forget. And so that was what the blues was for me. It was like, stop talking about salvation. Stop talking about ha- happily ever after and going to heaven. It's like, no, we're all going to die, and no matter what you believe, Jesus, this or that, you're never going to escape this reality. And, and I had to hold on to that in the middle of the pandemic, working at an Amazon warehouse of I have no control. I, my next breath could be my dying breath and I'm going to die. And it's either the pandemic that's going to kill me or something else. But the blues allowed me to not be afraid. And so I wanted to put that blind Willie McTell um, cover on the record. Atlantic didn't want me to because I wouldn't get paid because I didn't write it. But I knew that it needed to be on that record. Um, before we wrap up, I want to ask you about your live show because it is so much more than singer-songwriter with a little bit of chit-chat between the songs. It is cinematic, and it seems to me like you're intentional about including ceremony and moments of ritual um, in your set would you say that that was inspired by the spirituality that you grew up with in rebellion against that type of spirituality or something new altogether? I, the way that I approach my life set is I call it church, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. But I I wanted my life set to be what I needed church to be when I was a little girl sitting in in the pews every, every Saturday. I want to speak to what, I wished what I craved, what I needed to be spoken to in my human condition, to my flesh, 
I needed my flesh spoken to. And that's what my live show is. It is church, it is sacred. It's not just like, hey, I've got these songs. It's like, no, I'm on this human experience. This shit's fucking wild. Like this is absurd, y'all. And that is the most common, that is our common ground as human beings is like, we don't know where, why we were born. We don't know what we were before we were born. We don't know when we're gonna die. We know it's gonna happen, but we, we, we spend so much time denying that, of branching off from that very core truth. And so I want to bring that core truth, what has been rendered taboo, death, and the experience of, of transcendence to my live show and speak to people. And I don't care if you're black, I don't care if you're white, I don't care who you are, you're gonna die. And the blues is, mm. is a way to help you surrender to that truth that is a shit hot note to end on (sighs) i am so grateful to you for speaking so candidly about your life and your art um and it is also cool to like post interview someone that i've been on tour with when i'm like you're in the van and you're like oh i have this question and it pops up and now i actually have a format to ask them all yeah are you down to do a, a lightning round yes The rule of the lightning round is don't think too hard, just like whatever the first thing that comes to mind. No problem. Okay. What is the last book you read and loved? The last book that I read and loved was um, uh, In the Absence of God and the Presence of the Sacred by Sam Keen. Who is your dream duet partner? Oh, shit. Um, Fiona Apple. Follow up. I'm going to switch the order because I was going to do this later in the lightning round. But what is your favorite Fiona Apple song? My favorite Fiona Apple song is Left Alone. What is your favorite Nashville restaurant? My favorite Nashville restaurant is my grandma Betty Ann's Kitchen. For $1 million, would you kiss Jeff Bezos on the mouth? Yes, I would stick my tongue down his throat. For $1 million, would you punch Jeff Bezos on the mouth? Girl, I'd do that for a dollar. <laughs> What's your favorite color? Black. Who's your favorite clothing designer at the moment? Favorite clothing designer at the moment? <sighs> I don't know. I've actually just been buying a lot of vintage on Etsy. So I love that for you. Yeah, I love that for you. A woman of style. Okay. (laughs) What do you want done with your body when you die? I don't give a fuck. Don't bury me. I don't want to be buried. Me. Don't bury me. Don't bury me. Like don't, don't, I don't want to be in a casket. Like just throw me in the woods. I don't care. But just don't bury me. Don't involve me. Cardboard box under the kudzu. Yeah. Just let it nourish something. I don't care. Do you know any good curse words en français? Um, Yes, uh, va, va te faire food. Go fuck yourself. Va te faire food. <laughs> Adia Victoria, it has been an honor to talk with you. Thank you for being game to answer so many deeply personal questions on Basic Folk. Everybody, go listen to the single Ain't Killed Me Yet. Thank you, Boo Mama. This week's episode of Basic Folk was produced by John Nungesser. Alex Stanton composes our music. Basic Focus on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. You can find all of our episodes there. You can also search on the SiriusXM app for Basic Folk. Check out our website, basicfolk.com, or get it wherever you get podcasts. Thanks for listening all the way to the end. If you think you know someone that would like this podcast, you probably do know someone. You can send it to them. That would be great. Okay. Thanks for listening. Bye.